so true. Eyes haven't seen, ears haven't heard, neither has it entered into our heart, Lord, the things that you prepared for those who love you. But we do get a glimpse through your spirit, just a little bit, a little taste of what heaven's going to be like, the joy, the peace, the love. <laughs> it's just so wonderful, Lord. No matter what's going on in our own lives or around us, we have this gift that we can close our eyes and block it all out and just worship and love you. What joy floods our souls. Thank you for this time together tonight, Lord. We pray you truly would refresh us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated if you're not already there. Galatians chapter 6. It's only 18 verses, but we're not going to do that tonight. We're going to be lucky to get through five. One of the things that I have found in my own life is that grace is counterintuitive to us. And Jesus knew that that's how grace would appear <laughs> to the humankind. He gave a parable of the vineyard owner who in Matthew 20 went out to the vineyard to the marketplace looking for workers. And you know the, the story. You know, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. And they all get paid the same. And of course, the guys that came last got paid first, and the guys that came first got paid last, and they all got paid the same, and they were torqued. <laughs> this isn't fair. <laughs> We worked all day, you know. That's what it is. That's what grace, that's what he's trying to communicate. There's nothing fair about grace. The point about grace is, it's what God wants to do. It's who he is. And it is very counterintuitive to human nature. And what we will cover tonight is so critical that we understand that unless we learn, and it takes a lifetime to learn this, I'm, I'm, unfortunately. Some people pick it up a little quicker than others. You will not grow in your relationship with God until you learn how to relate to God on the basis of grace. It is that important. This is one of the most critical doctrines and understandings that a Christian needs to have. And I think it, it's not being taught. You... Of course, it's hard to teach you if, as a pastor, you've never really experienced it yourself. And so the evidence that you've learned the grace of God is the evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work in your life. There'll be evidence that you understand grace because that's how the Holy Spirit works through the person's life. Now, as we are in this letter of Paul to the Galatians, this is actually the first letter that he wrote, and you can tell in this epistle, his tone versus Timothy and some of the others are a little more personal to him. And he's, he's aged. And he's mellowed in grace. You can kind of see that in Paul's writings. I mean, this one right out of the gate, man, he is intense. He is up in the grill right there with, and facing these Judaizers head on. You hypocrites. He might as well have said it teaching these young babes in Christ to relate to God on the basis of the law. You fools. 
go ahead and just while you're at it, just cut it all off. And he he doesn't miss any words. And that's the attitude we should have towards legal legalism and those who would who would lay the law upon believers and not treat the believers and teach the believers grace. You know, we have this great Christian liberty as he started out there in chapter 5. You know, he's got the doctrine there in 1, 2, 3, and then 4, 5, and 6. Okay, here, do something with what, the, the truth. Do something with it. Apply it to your life. Don't fall into this trap. That Don't fall, pray to your flesh and this counterintuitiveness to resist grace. Enjoy this Christian liberty. Understand and experience the love of God. The loyal love that God has for you and, and that in turn that he wants you to express towards him and to your brothers and sisters. Learning to walk in the f- spirit. Live in the spirit. And then, of course, he lines out just for, in case you were wondering, or the reader would be wondering, there in the middle of chapter 5, here are the works of the flesh, just so you know. This is the battle that we face between the law, you know, the the law and the spirit and the flesh and the spirit. But here is where the application, if you really have the Holy Spirit controlling your life and leading your life and filling your life, it's how you treat other people. Relationships are so critical in the body of Christ. It can't, you can't, overemphasize this need and it is the hardest thing to maintain because we all you know let our guard down we say things or do things and we offend you know it's impossible as you said that offenses come I mean that they're not coming it's going to happen because we're fallen so in this chapter he ends the application of all that he's been saying to these believers you know about uh, relationships about works you know, the things that we do and, and really what our, where our boast should be. Not in, well, how many people we lead to Jesus or, you know, like other, like notches on our belt, but really how we learn to treat other people. So look, we're just going to do the first five verses here. So pregnant with meaning and purpose for us. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, and you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. So here in this application of the evidence of the Spirit, if you will, is the emphasis of this having good relationships. And to do that, there has to be this constant restoration of people. And when we are engaging in re- restoration and reconciliation and, bringing, and getting, you know, working out issues that come about in the church, in our workplace, in our home, wherever they, they happen. Uh, we're, that's evidence that we care. That's evidence that we have the Spirit because the Spirit cares. You know, we want to keep all our 
accounts short and empty, and we don't want to hold things against uh, one another. But he starts out here very personal, uh, actually kind of breaks it up into three different levels, so to speak, if you will. Brethren, and then spiritual ones, and then everyone. And so think of that for a moment. When you call someone your brother, it's personal. You live together. You exist in close, you know, I dwelt in close quarters with my brothers of the of the flesh anyway for a few years. You're close. You interact. Things happened, but there's a closeness there. And it's something that you always had to work out, maybe not immediately, but you worked out the differences that were there. But he's talking in the context of, of if anybody be overtaken uh, in a sin or you know a mistake, trespass. The idea of overtaken is something that um, to come upon or to kind of to take someone in unawares. It's, it's the idea is that they didn't really. It wasn't intentional per se. Um, they weren't really planning on doing it. it. It just sort of happened that way, you know, kind of a thing. And then the the fault is uh, a fault step or a blunder, overtaken in a fault. You know, is another way of looking at that. Um, it's the opposite of verse twenty five. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. So it's it's the idea that the guy that messes up wasn't really in the spirit, <laughs> and, you know, which is pretty obvious, I would think. And so. You don't want you don't ignore it. You don't try to destroy the guy over it, and you don't excuse it. That's important. But you restore. Let's. What can we do to help? Is always a good way to approach it. You know, just how can we help? How can we? You know, now I'm I'm kind of a fix it type guy, so I like things. You know, if they're broken, I like to fix them. But you can't. Ultimately, in this situation, we can't fix other people. Don't even try to get into that. But, but if. It's the attitude of approach that when there's something that's that's wrong, that there's been a trespass, there's been a a blunder, a failure, <laughs> you know, somebody's been overtaken with something, and you know it's got a grip on them. Then, hey, you know, the loving thing is not to ignore it, and especially it's at the right time through much prayer, because we'll never know how much prayer diffuses issues. We'll never know how important it is to pray. Pray, pray, and then with gentleness. There's a reason why gentleness is mentioned here. In the spirit of gentleness. What happens if somebody um, approaches you uh, when they're angry? Oh, yeah, just trample right over me. (laughs) Your immediate response, like most people, is get defensive. You know, and you just like throwing gas, you know, gaslighting. You You just throw a little more fuel on there and poof, you know, it's just... All of a sudden, it's an embroiled situation. So gentleness is huge. You know, and I, as I said before, there's nothing stronger than the gentleness of God. And that's what David says in the Psalms is where that comes from. Thy gentleness has made me great. Think about how gentle and kind God is with us. Now, if I were God, there's definitely a few times I would have backhanded me 
you you know you idiot <laughs> you know but god is very patient in that regard and so what, what do we mean uh about re, you know let's make sure we understand what we mean with the restore you you are repairing something you're bringing it back to the condition that it should be in or maybe what it was beforehand Cutterizzo, and it essentially means to put in order. And, uh, you know, like if you're setting a bone, um, it's kind of gross. I remember I was in grade school. I could handle blood. Dislocated bones, eh, that was a little rough on me as a 10-year-old. But this girl slipped on the wet grass, a little incline, and she slipped, and her, her, you know, her foot went this direction, and her upper body went that way, and it was just, <laughs> but you know she got it put back in place and that's sort of you know what we're talking about here with dislocation it's it just these kinds of things bring pain there's there's pain in the person and, and there's pain in the person there's probably embarrassment in the life of the person who who did the trespass there's hurt and pain in the life of the person who's affected by the blunder so it it there's it's, it can get complicated pretty quick as most of us understand that. So what Paul is seeking to do here as a spiritual father to most of these people who are reading this is he is seeking to put an end to how these young believers have been taught and ripped off by the Judaizers. It's important that we understand uh, that if we're going to have a life in the Spirit, we're going to have to depend upon what He supplies, and that is His power. It's only through grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit that any of us can overcome sin, that we can ever do anything even remotely that right in the sight of God. And But there are two things that we can do. And I think this is important. We have to have the desire. We have to want it. We have to want the Holy Spirit to do that in us and through us. It's not like, oh, well, here I am, God, just whatever. No, I have to want that. I, want, I have to desire it. And then uh, once I desire it, then that, that power will come. If you approach the problem in your life or the issues in your life through the law or measuring it or self-effort, you'll live in constant defeat. I think that's why a lot of us, uh, we, if we have this weakness in this one in particular, and we all have them, let's face it, uh, it's, it's probably because I'm not really letting grace come. I'm, I'm trying in my own strength to overcome. And until I learn to just bring it all and surrender and let the Holy Spirit in there completely, somehow that self-effort just sort of, you know, disqualifies us from receiving grace. And so God just lets us go until we give up. <laughs> you know, God, I'm just a train wreck here. And and as soon as I seem to get to that point, it's when he comes in. And I begin to have the victory that he so longed to give me anyway. So we look at this relationship thing, this brethren and those of us who are older in the 
in the Lord and have to learn how to help other people, you spiritual ones, you know, restore this restoration process is such an important part. And Paul's uh, Paul's doing that. He's now, the tone has changed. He is very confrontive to the hypocrites and to those that, that are doing this to the other people, but he has a total different approach. He's as a nurse or as a mother. He's very tender and gentle towards those uh, that he's trying to restore. And he's not, he's not overreaching. There are boundaries. Those are important things to understand in relationships. There's certain things we can say, and there's certain things. And this is why prayer is so important, to know where the boundaries are in relationship. Understanding, you know, like, um, just for example, uh, if it was a, a lady in the, in the uh, fellowship that something came up, for example, the proper thing to do would be to not, is to go through, talk to her husband. Always follow the chain of commands. How do I know that? Well, that's how God does things. He always follows the chain of commands. Remember this story of Abraham and Sarah's, you know, the, the visitation that we've covered this past Sunday. Um, they're at the tent, and, and uh, the Lord says that, you know, you're, you know Sarah's going to have a baby, you know. She's listening in the background, smirking, you know, all right, okay, right. Talking to herself in her heart. And then, who does they, the, the angel of the Lord doesn't turn around and say, why are you laughing, Sarah, right? He addresses Abraham. Why did Sarah laugh? So that's, you know, it's just something to put in there because uh, these are important things. Now, one of the things that I thought about uh, that's very important, uh, those of us who've received grace, that we've been on, you know, we've had our blunders, right? is not to overreact. A lot more damage I've seen in, you know, my own life experience through the years in the church. The damage, a lot more damage occurs probably than would have had to had people not overreacted. It was the overreaction to something that caused the greater damage than the initial blunder. Now I want to give you an example. Calvary Chapel is a, uh, God is raised up Calvary Chapel, but it's, it will be like everything else that happens in the history of mankind. It starts out right, and eventually it drifts left. It starts out conservative, usually right on the money, move of God, and eventually it'll drift left and become liberal. We're, we're not going to escape that in the Calvary Chapel movement. It's already afoot to some degree. And, um, but that's the nature of things. You don't have to be that way, by the way. Individuals, that's the choice that people make on their own. But I'm just saying, back in the early 80s, probably this happened 79, 80, um, there was a, the vineyard had, there was a split in Calvary Chapel. Uh, John Wimber, who's now with the Lord, uh, was considered himself an evangelist. He was a, a tremendous um, musician, and he was, he's also a teacher. And um, <clears throat> he felt that uh, the Calvary Chapel movement was getting too, was drifting away from the, um, too much from the gifts and the charismatic end of things. But that became an overemphasis that he uh, began to teach and practice. And so, uh, as the story goes, um, this is back uh, when a lot of the Calvaries were very young. Greg 
Lori had only been pastoring a few years, and Raul uh, had only been passing a few, Raul Reese had only been pastoring a few years at that point. And so they were at the Twin Peaks, and they had a conference there, and, and John Wimber was leading the worship, and then he did something in the meeting that didn't set well with some of the other uh, fellas. Let's just put it that way. And so they cornered one of them. They pulled one of them back into the kitchen area, if you're familiar with the conference center up there, and said, hey, what is this and what is going on here? So they sort of pounced, if you will. And, of course, Chuck, being older and more mature in the faith, sought to reconcile. He met with John, and they both agreed to disagree about that and Chuck had come out of the four square so he knew the extremes that Pentecostalism could lead into and said look this is where this will go this is where it'll end up I wouldn't advise that we can coexist we don't have to do that well John had an ambition for uh, uh, his own you know denomination or whatever and so thus you know the vineyard churches were born so that's sort of how that now there was a, a tremendous breakdown in the relationship at that point. You know, the, the younger pastors pounced on one of the assistants that were that worked very closely with John. And they, you know, these these guys had grown up together in the church. They knew each other. I mean, this whole movement had taken place in the early 70s and all, late 60s and early 70s. And so there was a, a kindred spirit that we they loved each other. But this really damaged, and it was an overreach and an overreaction. Uh, and it, thus it led to, you know, a split then. So, uh, you know, fortunately... I wasn't involved in any of that, but I was a, you know, I I could learn from that. Um, God has protected me in the churches that I've pastored and the churches that I've been involved in uh, about not being directly involved with splits and very hurtful things. Uh, I want to get, bring this back now to uh, to more of the individual relationships in, in, in the restoration. And I'd like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. And I, I briefly touched on this a little bit when we were in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. But I, I, I'm bringing it up here because the same word that's used here in John, James and John, uh, casting nets, or mending nets and Peter and and. Andrew casting nets. Uh, there's something here f- uh, for us. And so uh, in verse 16, we read this. Uh, Jesus, this is when he's calling his disciples. And he walked by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So the two 
words here, casting a net and mending their nets. And I've uh, kind of spiritualized that uh, over the years uh, in thinking about um, relationships and all, and really our giftingness, giftedness uh, in the body of Christ. The people, when you think about casting a net, if you know, I, I only can relate to that uh, throwing a shrimp net into the off the you know dock, and you, you know you do your best to make it as perfect circle, and you, you know it takes you really got to whip that thing and 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 flick it just right, or it's you know it's an <laughs> it's a mess. You you obviously want to do that to get the net to be as big as it can so that you can catch as many shrimp as possible. I mean, that's the whole idea. But it's a powerful force. You, you're thrusting it out. And so there, you take, you know, from this we see that, you know, there are those, you know, Peter, and that was kind of his personality, you know, a more straightforward, outgoing individual. And we have those kind of people in the church. They're, they're more... Uh, Action oriented, if you will, they're 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 task driven type people. They they have a vision. They cast the vision, and they they want to get that project done. They want to. They're they're a doer in that regard. And then you've got the other guys here, the other personalities, maybe a little more laid back. Uh, we see that that's really what happened to John. He was known as the Apostle of Love. But what was him and his brother doing? They were mending the nets. That word mending, that's the same word that's used there in Galatians for. Uh, restoration and and so you can there's not one's better than the other it's just who we are you are, are a mender or you're a caster your, your personality is going to kind of line up with probably one of those two and they're both needed those are, these are both gifts gifted type people needed in the church uh, the, the important thing is when it comes to uh, relationship that is that we we seek to restore if you're spiritual you consider yourself spiritual well if you really are spiritual then you will attempt to mend you'll attempt to restore uh, a person to its original their original state and condition and try to as it were mend the situation uh notice he says now we're back in galatians that he said considering your own self <laughs> if you've experienced grace <laughs> and you've learned to rate, relate to God on the basis of grace then you've that means God has helped you overcome your sin and your issues and so you know that you had sin to deal with you know that you've had issues and so you're merciful and compassionate upon the person who's made a blunder and and did something considering yourself because temptations are real for everyone failures are real for everyone what time is it here okay 40 um if a person a leader or any person who is living under the law they're going to have a very difficult time restoring other people because preaching the law to someone, telling someone to just obey the Ten Commandments, would you? <laughs> you know, the, the tongue lashing isn't going to work. 
Keeping the law can never work. Why do we know that? Because the law does not have the power. It cannot extend the power to the believer to overcome sin. It can only tell the believer, you are wrong. This is wrong. This is right. This is wrong. That's all it can do. It's, not, it's, it's there to reveal. That's its job. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good and perfect, as Paul said. But it's not going to help you get better. It's not going to bring uh, healing into your life. And you can always see the effects of people who are living under the law. They're sin conscious. They're constantly thinking about their sin. They're not living under grace. And for some reason, there's this law, like if I just do this, it's either the law, which is based in self-effort. You know, he who does the law will do the law, right? I mean, if you're living by it, that's your deal. And uh, that's kind of a bummer, you know. And, it, you know, after a while, you just, you should just, like, you know, white flag. Okay, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this. Lord, help me. And then that's, again, many of you have heard this before, and you know. But So it's a good reminder. It says, uh, If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, so there, there, there is this self-examination that should take place when you're in a situation. Well, you know, to look down your nose at someone when they have, when they have committed what we consider a crime, right, and they've. Blunt, made a blunder and they've hurt someone. I mean, we've got to have tender hearts. We've got to be gentle with people. We're not going to excuse it. Because if you just excuse it, then you're just going to allow them to live that way and that's destructive and that's not loving either. But you're not condemning them. They're in trouble. Um, and just, again, considering yourself. The idea, notice in verse 4, is stop comparing yourself to other people. That is a difficult thing to do. You know, there is a thing, and I think, see this in Calvary chapels. Now, if you have a big church, and I'm not saying this because I've, you know, because I've, I've been part of big churches, uh, being, you know, uh, where our church isn't very big now uh, at this point in time. Uh, so, Therefore, if you have a small church, you're not as spiritual or you're not as good a pastor as the guy who's got a big church. Um, be careful how you judge. <laughs> you know, there's there's lots of things that come into churches having a uh, large, larger number of people. What you really want, if you want to be a judge, <laughs> which I wouldn't advise, um, look at the fruit in the people's lives. Is the flock healthy? Is the is there is there a healthy body life and healthy relationship that will come because of how the leadership interacts with the people and when you have healthy relationships in the body of Christ it's because they're learning it and they've been taught that they see they've they've seen examples of it so uh, it's best not to get caught up in that uh, I'm content. Uh, to have a lot, I'm content to have a little. I've, as Paul said, I've learned that, and I get, I learn that lesson usually regularly on a financial basis. <laughs> sometimes you have a little more, and sometimes you have a little less. 
You know, you learn to just hang in there, whatever state that is. So it's kind of like that when it comes to, you know, people in your church. You know, whoever God brings, love them. Minister to the, the people that are there, not the people that are, that are not there. Wiersbe had this quote about, he's pretty harsh here. He has this quote about legalists. And I, it's, it, the quote, the influence of legalists among the Galatians made this warning necessary. Quote, nothing reveals the wickedness of legalism better than the way the legalists treat those who have sinned. How do you treat people? How do you treat family members when they screw up? Man, it's so important. Well, let's just put yourself in that position. If you did that, how would you want to be treated? Yeah, pretty pretty much brings it back into perspective. The law of Christ is the law of love. It never fails. Greater love has no love man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. That's the kind of love that God is, is putting in our hearts. And there's no need being self-deceived. Now, I want to finish up with something that's important. And, and this should set the example for us. How do we do this? Because, you know, there's nobody better at restoring a soul than somebody who has made a blunder and made a mistake than Jesus. You, you would agree to that, right? That he's the best. And so we have the classic story in John 21. Uh, you know, Peter denied the Lord. That's pretty, I'd say that's pretty, that's a rough one. And we want to look at why Peter did it, what was going on in his heart, what caused him to do that, and how Jesus approached the failure and the blunder that Peter had. So let's look at what Jesus did. We already know the story of denial, right, pretty much. And so, and then, you know, basically Peter's bailing. (laughs) I'm going fishing. Oh, we'll go with you. So he's not only himself leaving Sort of, you know, what maybe the Lord called him to do. It's like, hey, this isn't happening. I'm going fishing. We'll go with you. <laughs> this is a serious problem. This is why res- restoration is important. You, if you, a damaged person is going to damage other people, it, it can perpetuate. You know, there's kind of that little wave ripple effect that can take place. So, so the Lord takes care of the, by showing up on the shore. So he has a setting down period. Let's go sit down. Let's go have breakfast. You know, go out. Let's go out to eat, right? <laughs> he's not. They're on the boat. He's on the shore. He started a fire. I wonder how he did that. <sighs> okay. <laughs> and he didn't wait for their fish. He had already had fish there. And he's cooking the breakfast, right? So it's good to just sit down with the person, eat. Let's sup together. Let's do it over a meal. There's something about eating together. You sort of relax. You know, just. Ask a few questions. Love me more than these. Was he pointing at the fish? You'd rather fish? You love me? You'd rather, you love doing that more than you love me? Or since you were sort of boasting about things, like everybody, these other guys might deny you, Lord, but I would never. I'll lay down my life for you. So do you love me more than these guys? You know, Peter's just 
he's take he's taking it on the chin. He need you know uh, he's earned it though. Let's let's you know say that he's kind of earned it. So this isn't easy to receive, and I don't really anybody that enjoys confrontation and having to deal with something uh, when someone's really made a blunder. We'll talk afterwards. I mean, it. <laughs> this is not a comfortable. Jesus is so loving; it's probably fine for him because he's sort of been doing that for thousands of years. But you know, for you and I, this is not a fun thing to do. But it's an important thing to do, and you can't run from it if you're, if it's on you to reconcile and to restore someone. So sit down, approach them with simple questions. And then it's, you know, in Jesus' case, it was a method of repetition. I haven't quite figured this one out because every situation could be a little different. But sometimes people don't hear you. Yeah, so you, you can ask the same thing, but in kind of in different ways. You notice these fish or these fi- guys, you know. Love, you know, I don't really know, actually. It's pretty hard to understand what Jesus means exactly. You can't be dogmatic about it. Lovest thou me more than these? What are the these, right? I'm guessing. I'm sure it's covered with one of those two, <laughs> at least, right? But he asked him three times, you know. Do you love me? Of course, you know, the language we're pretty familiar with. He's using the word agape, which is the highest level. Jesus said, do you agape me more than these? And Peter says, you know that I love you, phileo. You know that I'm fond of you, Jesus. He knows he can't use the highest level because he just denied him. If I really loved you on that agape level, I wouldn't have denied you, Jesus. So he can't go there. And Jesus knows he can't go there. If he's honest in in his heart, and we know Peter is. So this is pretty... Uh, intense, but there's no self-deception. Peter uh, knows that um, he's not what he thought he was. He's now beginning to understand that this is going to be a long process of him growing in grace. You know, they'd been arguing about how great they were, right? I mean, right the the night of the betrayal, <laughs> unbelievable. Or the early morning hours, but at the, at the Passover, they're arguing with one another. Who's the greatest? Who's going to get on the right? You know, James and John, mom stood up for that position. Ooh, you know, they're struggling. They're com- in competition, and usually that's when a lot of this happens in in the church. If we're competing for position, we're competing for attention. Uh, we can get our feelings hurt. You know, there's all kinds of things we can get ourselves into. We're just, you know, foolish sheep sometimes, and so. Uh, a little self-deception going on there with Peter. And he really failed to understand, as we all do, uh, what his real need was. And this is the greatest need that every one of us have. We need love. The greatest need in my life isn't this or that or the other. It's not what I think it is most of the time. I just need the love of God to really love people unconditionally. Well, if they wouldn't do that, then I'd really like them a lot better, you know. <laughs> if they wouldn't do that, it wouldn't get on my nerves, you know. Why does she do that? Or why does he do that, you know? you. This is resonating? <laughs> yeah, I thought so. We have, we have issues, don't we? 
And the other thing is to know that I'm not perfected in that love because there's still fear. And this is what I believe was the very issue in Peter's heart. I'm going to leave you an acronym. Hopefully you'll be able to remember this when it comes to dealing with fear in your heart. And I'm telling you, this is really a huge issue. And trials, and especially the trial that we're going through as a nation and a community and around, fear, fear is causing people to act the way they do or not do maybe what they should be doing. FURL, F-U-R-L, is an acronym for identifying fear in my heart. The number one fear that most of us have, and this is the one that Peter had, is the fear of failure. He was afraid that he was going to let Jesus down. Now, Jesus would have loved to have not been deserted. He would love to have Peter probably stand up for him, but he knew what was in man, but he, and so he wasn't disappointed. But fear of failure, we all have that. Sometimes that's what provokes us to just keep pushing down the way so that we don't, we don't want to fail. For men, that's huge. We don't want to be failures. You, it's fear of the unknown. That can really paralyze a person. How's this going to work out? Well, 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 I'm pretty sure that's what the Lord said. I think that's going to happen, but when? How? You know, we're kind of in that situation now, presently. You know, the fear of the unknown. You know, imagine how the disciples must have felt when they saw Jesus arrested. And then as they stood out there in the courtyard watching him get his face beat in. You know, put a blindfold on him and ripping his beard out and spitting on him and the whole thing, you know. How's this going to work out? There's a lot of fear, a lot of intimidation going on. R, fear of rejection. We want everybody to love us. Well, they don't love me. They don't ever talk to me. They never notice me. I mean, they must not like me. I feel rejected. You know, we... (laughs) Everybody, this isn't, there's nobody in this room that isn't subject to these kinds of, we're people. This is just human nature. This is really who we are. We all are afraid to fail. We are afraid of the unknown. We don't want to be rejected. And the last one, L, fear of loss. What if if this happens, then I don't want to lose that. As a pastor, it's like, I don't want everybody to leave the church after I say something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, so as a, as a, you know, I mean, I fear and tremble coming to the pulpit right? <laughs> weekly. <laughs> Was it something I said? You know, you don't ever want to have to say that. <laughs> well, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. Oh, I know. You know, there's all kinds of failures you can make when, you know, you're putting yourself out in front of people. You're coming to church, you're, uh, you're part of the, Family of God, you're put, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable in your your own family because everybody knows your weakness. Everybody know we know each other, and thus we need grace. Do we deserve grace? No, that's exactly the point. Nobody deserves it, but we give it because we've received it. And so this is um this is an important thing. You know, Jesus. You know. Peter was afraid that 
He was going to let Jesus down. He didn't know what uh, was going to happen to Jesus, the fear of the unknown. After the resurrection and he had denied the Lord, I'm pretty sure Peter thought it was over. I'm done. I, you, I couldn't have screwed up anymore. I, I was bragging, thinking I'm the number one guy in the group, besides Jesus. And then I fully, full on just denied him. I even cussed and swore. So God's done with me. How many people have left the church? And it's a, this is a heartbreak, but it's true. How many people have left the church because they felt rejected? They weren't good enough. Well, that's because they never sensed grace coming, possibly. They've, or they never experienced the grace themselves. When you fail and you make a mistake, you feel like God's going to reject you. That's the ultimate rejection. God help us. He doesn't feel that way. God doesn't feel that way towards us at all. As a father pities his own children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. None of my children, and they didn't do too many egregious things at all. They were really pretty good kids growing up. And even when things happened, that was the furthest thing from our minds as parents. Well, we're done with you. Go find another parent, you know. No. You know, you, you know so you, you know, translate that into the perfect love of God. He would never reject us. All those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Does that mean anything? It should mean something to you. He'll never give up on you. God never gives up. Did he give up on Judas? The ultimate betrayer? Friend? Betray the Son of Man with a kiss? <laughs> That's not rejection in my eyes, in my estimation. Would he... The fear of loss for Peter. Well... Thought I was number one in the kingdom after Jesus, but I'm done. I've lost my position. Fear of loss, huge. So fear. That's why now, now having said all this, do you understand why we need gentleness? You can't pounce. You can't pounce. Now, There's some things said at the end of service this past Sunday morning. Totally caught me off guard. I had a discussion with my wife about something, things going on in our country that I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing that from the pulpit. You know, people can figure this out on their own at this point. And then the person who I know. F- I've come to know pretty quickly, fairly, I know he's hard, I understand he's hard. I thought he, you know, I'd had some spiritual, fairly deep spiritual conversations with him, and I kind of thought that's where it was going. (laughs) And so what was shared uh, probably didn't affect, you know, there was very little damage control I had to do, (laughs) but there was some, and I... uh, probably could have handled that differently at the end of the service, but I I sort of, you know, 
I didn't handle it as perfectly as it could have been handled. But I prayed, and I pray for those kinds of situations. Lord, please cover this prayer. Remember we said about prayer? Please cover this. And so I checked up on a few people, had a few conversations. And I think God's got it. But there's always that chance that somebody could be offended and there's some repair and mending that needs to take place. But we need to have gentleness. Not only gentleness with the people that were offended, but the person maybe who did the offending. Can't pounce. Can't pounce. Gentleness. So you might as well, hey, we're going we're gonna to say we teach the word. We're going we're gonna to apply it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just look the other way and say things don't happen. Well, you know, that's not the way it is. So applica- I find it kind of interesting that we find ourselves in this passage <laughs> after the afterwards. So I think we're in good footing. I think we're in good shape. I think because we have the love. See, the love covers a multitude of sin. We never forget that. God's always got us covered. If we just be tender-hearted and kind and gentle with one another, uh, the mending process, it's a lot less hurtful. Next week we'll pick up, this is um, applying the uh, evidence of the spirit-filled life with good relationships. Next week we'll look at good works and a, uh, a good boast. Uh, what we're to be, if we're going to have a boastage, what are, there is a good boast. And so we'll cover that next week, shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word. And this is a, so practical, Lord. So practical. Help us to apply it in Jesus' name. Amen.